Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 15th, 2022. My guest is economic historian Judge Glock. He is director of research at the Manhattan Institute. Judge, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having me, Ross. As someone who's listened for over a decade, it's a real pleasure. Glad to hear it. Our topic for today is housing. Uh, we're going to start with zoning based on a recent essay of yours where you gave zoning two cheers, not three, two. Uh, I'm more like one, so I'm very interested to hear what we have in common and what we disagree on uh, in that area. So what's the argument for zoning? What's good about it? So, yeah, and I actually also debated whether or not it should be 1.5 cheers or one cheers, and I gave up on fractions and settled for two. So the the, the basic argument that I kind of start with is that you know, there's a lot of real and justifiable complaints about the American housing system and American housing affordability. But from my perspective, there, there's a lot to be said for it in general. And, you know, I, I often use that, that there's the old economist joke that somebody asks, you know, how's your wife? And the economist responds, relative to what? Um, you know, you look at the American housing system and by some measures, it, it's in fact the most affordable on earth. Uh, certainly when you look at the rest of the, the Anglophone world, uh, we have what's called a price to income ratio, uh, the median house price to median income ratio, uh, about four, where you see a lot of places like New Zealand or Australia, it's more like seven or eight. And even places that the data is not as good, but like Japan, that's often celebrated as kind of an urbanist success. You often see these, these housing price to income ratios more like seven or eight. So from, from a lot of measures, uh, American housing is pretty good and pretty affordable. And that also makes one kind of think about it and look at the places in America that are, are very affordable. And they happen to be a lot of places that do have actually extensive single family zoning, extensive uh, uh, powerful local governments. If you look at places like Nashville or Atlanta or Oklahoma City, um, you know, these places for, for growing cities have some of the most affordable housing on earth. And so, you know, if zoning is not the overwhelming issue uh, in a lot of these cities, and if, you know, zoning is near universal, but America's real housing crisis is kind of located in a few areas, most importantly, California and New York uh, and uh, Massachusetts and some of the coast, then then what's the real issue here? To me, it can't just be zoning. Um, and so in the piece, I, I then also talk about what some of the economic advantages of zoning could be and what some of the economic literature says about that. So talk about those advantages. What would be the argument? So it it, it basically goes back to a, a 1956 piece from Charles Tebow uh, that became kind of institutionalized as the Tebow hypothesis that, you know, it, he was trying to answer the question of how do you decide how much governments should pay for, for public goods, streets, police protection, you know, to some extent, you could say schooling, some of these local public goods are provided by government. And this is a similar question people like, you know, James Buchanan and Richard Musgrave and other people were trying to answer at the time. And, and Tebow had an interesting argument about this. He said, well, if you have a lot of competing local governments, uh, 
they should actually allow people to kind of decide the mix of taxes and public goods they want. Uh, and this competition between local governments should keep them you know, relatively efficient, probably not as efficient as a, as a pure private sector thing. But if there are public sector goods that can't be provided by the, the private sector, um, this would be a way to figure out how much people want to pay for them. Uh, but it didn't take long for you to realize there's a potential issue with, with that kind of Tebow hypothesis. Um, and the main one is there's a free rider problem that uh, say you had an area that was willing to tax itself for a lot of uh, public goods, mainly through property taxes. Uh, but a lot of people could move in and pay for below the average property tax rate. Uh, you'd have a tendency of everybody to pull back on paying for public goods at all because there was a tendency to to redistribute it. And you know the economic literature is pretty consistent that when you tend to redistribute public goods, especially away from the median voter, the median voter votes for less of them. Uh, so, and in fact, one of the, the, the main people pointing out this critique was, was James Buchanan and uh, a man named Goats, uh, in 1972, uh, arguing that like, you know, there's this kind of perpetual chase after good local public goods in these small local governments. And so some economists like Bruce Hamilton and others realize, well, zoning kind of solves that problem. That if you have, uh, zoning that determines sort of how much you know, property people could afford or should afford in these kind of competitive local suburban environments. Um, and you had property taxes that were kind of commiserate with the amount of zoning and amount of property that was allowed in these local governments. Uh, you basically had something that looked, you know, kind of, if you really squint a little bit, maybe like a business that uh, you have these these owners who have a lot of equity invested in this area. Uh, they're fairly homogeneous and uh, they can determine who can kind of come in and come out uh, investing in the business. And they would have kind of a, a goal to maximize the value of their housing wealth, um, which can have both good and bad effects. But the, uh, they would also have a lot of incentive to pay for good public goods. Um, and so that's the kind of base argument for zoning. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate, obviously, about that. Uh, but, you know, I, again, I think the important point is here that in those areas we know that have a lot of this single family zoning, housing seems to be pretty affordable. You seem to have these very successful local governments. We know these local governments that tend to be uh, tend to be more competitive and more efficient by many measures than more distant centralized governments. Uh, so if you care about that kind of local competition in public goods um, and you want some sort of mechanism to encourage that, zoning is is one means to do that. Yeah, let's talk about the single family pieces. I mean, there's a lot of different aspects to zoning, obviously, that go and housing regulation were generally an approval for uh, new building and so on. But what we're really talking about here is whether in the middle of a suburban landscape, you could build an apartment building or a multifamily home, an eight unit, not not necessarily mm -hmm. a skyscraper. And in many of those towns, correct me if I'm wrong, that's literally against the law. Yeah, I mean that that's correct. And so, to some extent, you know, I, I agree with a lot of the, as it's known, the Yimby movement, the yes in my backyard movement that tries to advocate for more, uh, for more housing, but the. You know, the interesting thing, again, is their, their argument is like, well, the main barrier to housing affordability is this inability to build these large apartments in, you know, single family zone communities in the suburbs. Uh, but to me, that does face a, a real sort of query that, well, 
where is the housing the most affordable in the United States? And again, it is those, you know, something like Oklahoma City is often kind of a poster child. It's, uh, you know, places like Dallas, Nashville, and the others have very low housing price to income ratios. And they have all of the single family zoning, very little state restrictions on it. But if you look at places like California and Massachusetts, um, California especially, they have by most measures, the densest housing in America. Uh, they have lots of multifamily housing. They have lots of what known as infill housing. Uh, and they, uh, and they encourage that at the state level. You, there's a lot of mandates to encourage more of this apartment housing. And that doesn't seem to make those areas significantly more affordable. If anything, it, it seems to go in the opposite direction. So what's the main sort of encouragement of affordability? It seems to be this actual, more development in the green fields outside of existing urban areas that's mainly but not exclusively single family, which also seems to be what most Americans want in a in a house. Uh, my urban-oriented friends would say, well, that encourages sprawl. And if you don't provide any services for um, making it easy to live inside the city, and of course, they're going to say that's what they want. But in a different world, they'd want something else. And they might be right. We might come back to that. But I, I want to You've identified a correlation that many places that have zoning have uh, have affordable housing, but of course those are places where land is relatively cheap. Uh, and there's two. It seems to me there's two issues here. There's what are you allowed to build and how long does it take to build it. So if we think about, um, and I think the time to build is a the length of time to build is a easily underappreciated aspect of this problem. Certainly living here in Israel, I think the time it takes to get a building approved and get it uh, actually executed is probably somewhat similar or worse than it is in, say, the Bay Area. But if I think about San Francisco, which I know you have some experience with, uh, and I think about Palo Alto. So Palo Alto is this this um, pristine, adorable, fabulous, incredibly expensive uh, suburban area of the Bay Area. And I'm sure it's highly regulated. I'm sure it's hard to build a a, a 40 unit apartment building. And um, and the, to me, the fundamental question fundamental question is: the people in Palo Alto don't want those 40 people living there. They just don't. And the zoning keeps them out. And I'm not sure that the 40 people who like to live in that apartment building and enjoy the amenities we're talking about, some of the public goods, you know, a, a, a very respected school system, uh, very very nice air, uh, super, super good, temper pleasant temperatures most of the year. Uh, those should people be entitled to live there? I mean, if you fill out, how many 40, 40 unit apartment buildings would you allow them to build? 50, a thousand, you know, what's the, uh, would it change the character of Palo Alto? Yes, it would for sure. Should it, who should be in charge of that? Well, right now the people in charge of it, the people already live there. So that's troubling also. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I mean, I agree with most of that. And I think it's important to kind of frame who would be the potential winners and losers of uh, what's called an upzoning uh, when you increase the amount of density you could build. So, you know, there's a good argument that if you are kind of, if you were a benevolent city manager, you don't say dictator when you get down to the city level, but let's say you're a benevolent city manager yeah. and the, the, the smaller level, you know, again, I, I think it's more, 
there's a good reason you are ha- actually allow more centralized kind of executive control at a smaller level because there's more exit as an option as opposed opposed to voice as an option. Uh, but let's say you're you're a benevolent city manager. Um, Bruckner, an economist back in the 1990s, uh, said that well, you know, your actual goal should probably be to maximize the value of land in your city. Uh, you can't control consumer welfare. You can't control control you know all the businesses and whatnot. But if your goal is to maximize the people inside it, you should maximize land welfare, and that would uh, it would help do all the things that I talked about in, in competitive local governments. Now, a lot of Yimbies and some of the other groups, uh, urbanists aligned to them, assume that would mean everybody would try to prevent development. But most of the evidence is that contemporary zoning is is too strict relative to a goal of maximizing land value. So you mentioned that, you know, people like to point out the the person in Palo Alto has a $3 million, $4 million single family home. Um, people say, look at all the benefits zoning gives that person. But the way I, I, I often think of that actually is if that person could subdivide their land into four single family homes, maybe for a million dollars or sell it off for a significant amount of money, uh, to an apartment developer or something else, they could get more income than they have. And so the argument that zoning, you can think of zoning as something like a monopolist to some extent, right? The way to increase the price of something is just to restrict the supply of it. And on the whole, that actually means less welfare overall. You know, if you, if you restrict the supply of a good, you're getting less of that good, including less, uh, you know, consumer welfare for everybody. So zoning in one sense can do that. That's a kind of bad zoning. And I would say, again, I would agree with most of the Yimby friends that most zoning in America today is too strict. It's preventing the full development of land. Uh, and there would be an argument for increasing the density uh, to benefit everybody. And uh, why that isn't taking place everywhere is, is one argument is one question we can deal with. But I think a very important issue is actually California sets up a lot of things that make it harder for new places to grow and compete. Uh, one of my favorite uh, sort of facts there is, is back in the 60s, California created something called uh, LAFCOs, their local area formation commissions, I think they're called. And these are set up in the county level and they're basically cartels of existing municipalities that can side when new municipalities start, you know, one of the, the advantages of places like Nashville and Dallas and all of the rest of it is that if you want to kind of go out into the sticks and build your own city, uh, you can do that. You can get some people together. You can eventually vote for a city. Uh, that city or sometimes a utility or infrastructure district can build all those public goods. Uh, and that kind of puts pressure on those other cities to do well. That kind of Tebow competition we talked about. but. In California, they literally, you know, it, it to me, it's a great, you know, a kind of equivalent of the certificate of need stuff for for a lot of yeah. the private sector. And if you think, yeah, exactly. And, you know, th- you had the same arguments there about local governments that you do about yeah hospitals or taxis or all the rest of it that, you know, this is chaotic. New people are starting up cities everywhere. You know, you don't want it. And so these LAFCOs have all the existing cities and districts on their boards and they decide do we want a new one? And they say, no, we don't want new competition. Um, and so, you know, this is why you look at the, the argument is, well, why is Palo Alto and all these areas so expensive? And people say, well, it's again, all this, this single family zoning. Um, but by most measures, you know, San Francisco Bay area is one of the densest in the country, second, third, depending on how you look at it. Um, 
And if you look at the kind of nine county Bay Area, almost 40 percent of that is grazing and pasture land. I mean, to me, the real argument, the real kind of monopolization that's preventing development is that inability to, to grow outwards and create new municipal competitors, new districts, new areas that can really compete with those existing ones and also then kind of force them to a more optimal level. And even if we should restrict zoning, I think a lot of our energy should be focused on what can we do to grow outward and create new competitors in a sense. Yeah, I mean, if you if you drive the 280 from Palo Alto or Menlo Park to um, into the city of San Francisco, there's a lot of vacant land. And it's really yeah, and it's, it's really beautiful. And I really oh, would cool. like love look I love looking at it when I would go visit there. And I think the hard part on all these questions, I'm sure there's a fancy name for it, but it's really the character of the place. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, I've talked about this with respect to New York City in the episode with the Lamberto. You know, Chelsea, the neighborhood of New York called Chelsea, is really cool. It would look really different if it was all skyscrapers. Um, wouldn't be as cool, but poor people could afford to live there and that would maybe be important. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think there's a, we have a romance about place. Uh, a lot of people would say the Bay Area should not be changed, right? There's nothing, all those, those farmlands and pasture and other things should not be allowed to be built on. Uh, th that's the way it's perfect in that way and it should be left alone. And Palo Alto should stay these small, uh, you know, single family units. And then if we allowed apartment buildings there, it would be uh, destructive. It would ruin what is special about the place. And I think it would to some extent. I think there's a, I, I, I like to think there's a middle ground. I like to think yeah. there's a middle ground where certain types of streets would be allowed to have the larger apartment buildings or at least three or four multi, you know, multifamily units. Um, and I think it's um, like many areas of economics you know, there's a bootlegger and, ba and Baptist issue here where uh, there's a good reason to have zoning. There's a good argument for it. At the same time, it allows an opportunity for the self-interested, uh, that's the bootlegger, uh, to take advantage of the better intention side of the discussion. I haven't talked about bootleggers and Baptists in five years, probably. I think I talked, but, you know, bootleggers and Baptists agree that it's bad to sell liquor on Sunday. So the bootlegger likes it because it creates demand for their product. The Baptist likes it because they think it's God's will to make it the Lord's day and not drink. Uh, so the politician says the Baptist's right and then takes money from the bootleggers to make sure that the the law stays uh, outlawing liquor sales on Sunday. But but the real reason that bootleggers and Baptist is destructive is that it's not just that, that politics makes strange bedfellows. It's that when you get into the details of how the regulation gets implemented, uh, it often, the Baptists uh, have gone off to church and the bootleggers are really focused on how this is working to make sure it helps them. And I think that's the real issue, right? It's a, a powerful tool, uh, zoning. And, and my guess is that in its actual implementation, it doesn't need to be as draconian as it actually is. Absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, exactly where I come down on, on this. But I mean, I think an important, maybe not a qualification, but like an important perspective here is that a lot of these kind of public choice and government questions do look a lot different when you get down to the area of local governments, and especially when you get down to the area of, of competitive local governments. So, you know, if you have a government that is is local and people can say have a choice of one or two dozen local governments in an area, to kind of choose from and uh people can 
can maybe choose. I, I mentioned in the in the article, you know, there's wet and dry counties. There's uh, there's uh, cities and places that where means, drugs are fair. That means places where you can legally buy alcohol and can't. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Not everybody knows what uh, that is, Judge. Sorry. No, no, thank you. Good point. It's it's much rarer than it used to be. Even, yeah. you know, 30, 40 years ago, it used to be fairly common to have dry counties throughout. And, you know, that that brings the sort of question of if you have a strong exit option uh, for these local governments, how much do some of these, you know, broader public choice problems take place of, you know, if if the bootleggers, you know, conspire with the Baptists to do uh, to could create that uh, those those rules against drinking or the dry county or whatever it is, and you have well people that a large majority who really want to live in a dry county. Let's even say we could put a price on it somehow, or that we could allow people to express through through exit and and voting with their feet, as it's known, that this is a, the kind of place they want to be in. Uh, does that temper the sum of negative sort of deadweight losses of? A bad regulation. It might, and it might in a sense even, you know, allow for a lot more consumer surplus. It might allow for a lot more people insofar as they value a certain kind of local community, the character, which you talked about. Uh, you'd want them to one sense pay for that, price that in the value of land and allow them for those sort of different alternatives uh, across different things. And I think this gets to your Palo Alto kind of question or, or Chelsea. You know, in, in one way, again, if, if we are an efficient city manager, uh, we should look at that and say, well, you know, there's a value to Chelsea looking like Chelsea. And you could look uh, at, say, maybe developing a huge amount of apartment spending would actually lower that value substantially, uh, would lower the value of land because those amenity values would be lost. And kind of zoning uh, when it's done well can create those sort of positive amenity values. And everyone agrees those are there. Uh, you know, I think too many of the the kind of pro-development and Yimby groups, which again, I, I do consider myself, uh, are kind of dismissive of the, the effects of the negative potential effects of increased density. They're not, I'm not saying they're, they're overwhelming. In many places, they're more than necessary, but there is congestion. There is, you know, aesthetic costs. There are these other things. So what do you do about all that? Uh, again, it, in a one way, Allowing these competing municipalities whose goal is to maximize the value of the land will incorporate and internalize, as it's known, a lot of those costs. Like, say, Chelsea, it's its own city, and everyone can vote for, like, well, do we want to develop or not? If you tell everybody, well, you know, you can develop more, and this is going to make all of your land worth four times as much. I do imagine a lot of the people would would vote for that, even if they had aesthetic or character concerns. And or as opposed to the yeah, Yeah, they might be wrong. And they might make a mistake, obviously. That's not the, the question here. Coming back to the Thibault hypothesis and this idea of local competition, I think one perspective on it might be how unimaginatively uncompetitive most, say, Bay Area suburbs of San Francisco are, whatever they're not suburbs, cities uh, that ring San Francisco. They all kind of have very similar uh, situations. Uh, I'm thinking about how little experimentation there is in, say, yeah. urban transit. Now, of course, 
it's tricky because some people want to go beyond. They don't want to just travel within the little city that that they live in. So that starts to get complicated. Uh, private companies have figured that out pretty well, by the way. You know, Google has runs a massive bus uh, business in, in the city of San Francisco. And they got protests for it, too. Yeah, well, and, and the reason was they weren't living in the oh, city. Something about something no, about were. rich people on buses uh, were, were taking over San Francisco. It seemed to be a win-win for everybody, but no, what do I know? never can <laughs> be. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, you have a situation, I think, uh, so recently in a neighborhood in London where they have very high taxes um, for car travel in certain time. I might want to get this wrong. doesn't matter. But they have special ways. To, they, they try to make it more expensive to own a car. Yeah. Now, not every piece of London is like that, uh, I don't yeah. think. This one neighborhood has done this, and it what it's created, neighborhood, it's, um, you know, it's one little, again, suburby yeah. kind of thingy. Uh, there are fewer cars. It's easier for kids to play in the street. Uh, if you're worried about pollution, there's less of it to breathe. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's not, again, it's, I'm not sure that's where I'd want to live, but it might be. Uh, I don't know. And then you'd say, well, what are you going to do to go along with that? So, you know, we had, uh, you know, Donald Stroop on this program, you know, where he says you don't want to require people to, to, when they build an apartment building, to provide uh, off street parking. The argument for off-street parking requirements are that, well, all these people are going to move in in this apartment building. Then they're going to crowd up the parking along around the area, and that's an externality. So you should force them to provide off-street parking. And his point is that, of course, that just means the apartments can be very much more expensive because a huge part of the apartment building is not rentable. It's just taking up with a parking garage, taking up with a parking garage, including a parking garage for people who don't own a car because you've got to prepare. You know, it's, there's a requirement in advance for, in case they do own a car. And so, but then you have to ask the question. So, what are they going to do when they want to go out? If if you don't, if you don't build the the, the garage, what are you going to do? They are going to cruise and look for spaces. And and the answer is, of course, you have to build some urban transportation options for them. And that yep. seems to be sensible. Uh, and yet, we struggle to do that. It seems in many cities. No, it, exactly. And I, I mean, I think this this gets to one of my obsessions, which is so so. If there, which we kind of briefly touched on earlier, which is if these cities kind of already have a, an incentive, as one may say, to kind of maximize the value of their land, and yet they're not doing it, you know, what what is what is holding them up, and why are they creating these kind of obscene regulations that don't seem to benefit everybody? Uh, you know, one, I would say that there's a lot of these like, uh, you know, I know some humans will disagree with me, but a lot of the the most burdensome things are happening in these central cities where a lot of the benefits can uh, accrue to different interest groups. Different interest groups can catch the large city. In fact, the larger a city is, there's much more you know, evidence that these are less efficient than these smaller local government areas. One of my favorite examples, there's some studies on what's known as the flypaper effect, that uh, if a government gets a ton of free money from usually a higher level of government or a boost in, in property taxes, uh, do you keep it? You know, an efficient, if you were an efficient city manager, you should pretty much just return it down in tax cuts to people because you already had the right proportion of public services sure. that you all wanted. Um, and what you find is, is small governments do that large by and large. If you have a small suburb that gets a kind of boost in property taxes, they keep their total public service spending flat and they just cut taxes. The larger cities are much less likely to do that. They're much more likely to have what's called the flypaper effect. It sticks 
to that city and they use it for interest group and log rolling and all the rest of it. So, I mean, I think that's part of the thing. Again, using that not perfect, but somewhat useful metaphor is these cities as kind of competitive uh, corporations in a market. And I'll even point out that historically, a municipal corporation was not treated substantially differently from a normal corporation. It was legally pretty much the same thing. Uh, both were just considered corporations created by the state that had some authority. Well, you, um, you raised the question so, a minute ago about why these municipalities might not want to maximize the value of their land. I'm not sure that's a good idea. It's an interesting idea. Uh, but you did describe that would require a benevolent city manager. And uh, yeah. But in fact, usually that city manager has to get elected. Yeah. And of course, the incentives that person faces are going to be not quite what you might have in mind. Well, it, it, to some extent, exactly. But as long as you have the exit option, and again, I would think of it maybe if we're using the metaphor of a corporation where, you know, who rises to the top of a corporation? It's somebody who can promise to maximize the value of the internal stuff. And the larger the corporation gets, it's a little tougher to kind of maximize shareholder value. There's more uh, problems with, you know, aligning incentives, all the rest of it. But you have a really strong reason to do that. And in one of the ways that, you know, William Fischel, one of my favorite researchers over at uh, Dartmouth, talks about the home voter hypothesis. And, you know, he makes the good argument that, you know, a lot of people have a lot of wealth tied in a single asset that's illiquid, immovable, uh, and that's why they're rightfully attuned to what their city manager does. Uh, and, you know, not only do they have that asset that they're, makes them very attuned to that, they also, when people are competing to get people inside or outside the city, uh, they have a lot of competition in terms of other cities do. So, so just like a corporation, even if, you know, the kind of inner internal politics of that are, aren't always great for who gets to the top. As long as you have that outside competition, there's some, you know, some sort of uh, limitation to those exploitative tendencies. Now, again, not perfect. And, and maybe just briefly talk about some of the, uh, the ways that that's kind of been sabotaged. Now, one of my obsession is, is property taxes. So the, the main argument for, for zoning and uh, public goods and the TOBO hypothesis is that well, most of local government is paid for through property taxes. And if you have a new development that increases the value of every of property taxes, everyone in the city benefits from that. Um, one, they might benefit from allowing more upzoning of their land just because they themselves could build more. But even if, let's say, a single parcel somewhere else was was upzoned and developed, uh, how that could, even though the rest of the city would have to face the local congestion and all the other charges, they'd get these property taxes. And one of my favorite quotes from a newspaper in the Bay Area in the 1960s is arguing why they should develop it. They said, well, cows don't pay property taxes. <laughs> um, you should, you as a, a local voter trying to maximize value of land uh, should try to do that uh, and encourage that. And they did. These cities were what known as, as growth machines throughout most of the 50s and 60s for good reason. And California was the kind of, you know, quintessential example of that, becoming the biggest state in the union in, in 64 and growing very rapidly. So so what changed? You know, one of my favorite explanations is a lot of the uh, states uh, in California was through a lawsuit known as Serrano v. Priest, um, tried to equalize property taxes for school districts, most importantly. They said, if your area, it's inequitable that your area has a lot more property taxes than the city down the down the road. Um, and we should make sure when you raise property taxes that most of that goes to that city down the way. Um, and again, there's, there's lots of good arguments for that. And, but there was two surprising effects of that. One is that the argument in that, that past, there was in that, 
that was decided yeah. in favor of of flattening of yes. property taxes in California. In California, and it largely was replicated throughout most of the states in the union, either through other court cases or through uh, state-level legislative changes that redistributed property taxes or state grants based on how much cities were were raising for schools to try to equalize. In California, it was you know almost like a hundred dollar difference per student was all you were allowed. It had to be almost exactly equal. Other cities and states, it's or states, it's a little distinct. But but one interesting side effect of that was that people voted for what was known as Prop 13, which is the property tax limitation measure in California. And a lot of people say, and I think correctly, and again, William Fischel did some of the great early research on this, is, well, this is because of this Serrano v. Priest case. They, if everyone said, if you're going to redistribute my property taxes, I, I don't want to raise them. <laughs> there's, there's no reason to, to take that, uh, that sort of local benefit uh, for that. And a version of what Prop 13 was in, when it passed after the Serrano v. Priest case, uh, overwhelmingly, almost about two to one, uh, that went down by about two to one a few years before the Serrano v. Priest uh, case, uh, the second version was decided. And that seems to be the argument. A lot of these redistribute things kind of broke the link between property taxes, which could provide a lot of local gains for these for these local taxpayers, and development. And, you know, it was really post-1980, you saw this incredible explosion in California housing prices. And I'd say partially because of those things I talked about, the restricting of competition, new cities, but partially because you you didn't give a lot of these people an incentive to build. And to my mind, like when we're talking about how can we force governments to do something, which we agree they should do, which is build more. Um, to me, instead of kind of focusing on how can we create more state mandates, we should create, well, we should look at how we encourage them to build more. If we think there are gains from trade, if we think there are net benefits to be gained from development, which there are, um, how can we make sure that, you know, that local governments, those areas have that incentive? And one thing would be restoring property taxes. Are you saying that in the Bay Area, let's take um, an example I always enjoyed because it's so dramatic. Um we have Palo Alto and East Palo Alto. They're separated mm -hmm. from each other by the highway, the 101 highway. It's my poster child example because when I would say that we should have less government involvement in schools, we should have private schools more generally, they would say, well, then all the rich people would get together and they'd get really good schools and the poor people would be stuck with the bad schools. I said, well, you know, Palo Alto, most of the students score in the 99th percentile. And, you know, there has to be a district in the first percentile, meaning the worst. Yeah. And in some areas, whether it's math, science, I don't remember English, uh, East Palo Alto is down in the single digits. So, you know, one and, and down to one in some areas. So one versus 99 is a pretty big gap. Are you saying it could be bigger? <laughs> Would it be negative 17 to 130? Uh, you know, it's kind of a tough argument to make. So East Palo Alto it's got it's gentrified a bit since I used to tell that story. It's gotten a little bit yeah. uh, more developed, but at the time, East Palto had a lot of um, undeveloped areas. It was desperately poor, um, and Palo Alto at the time, this is in the mid '80s, was thriving. And it's still true that Palo Alto is much healthier economically than East Palo Alto. Are you saying to me that that the property taxes that come out of Palo Alto? that stay in Palo Alto uh, are roughly equal to the property taxes that come out of East Palo Alto because of 
government redistribution in Serrano v. Priest? Is that true? For schools, that's that's largely true. There have been a lot of changes since uh, Serena v. Priest in, in some of the cases in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, but the most recent version in California, the local control funding formula, I think, which was created in 2014, keeps that spending on local schools pretty close to equivalent. Like, it's pretty close to the same. And that kind of gets to the question of you know, what we know about school funding, which is that that funding doesn't seem to be an overwhelming determinant of, of local school success yeah. and quality. And two, the interesting thing to me is that what everyone agrees what happened both post Serrano v. Priest and post um, Prop 13 is that school spending dropped substantially across the state of California. Um, and even if you don't think it has a substantial effect, Everyone agrees that what California uh, turned from, in many ways, a leader in, in local education in K through 12 into an obvious laggard near the bottom of a lot of quality and other metrics. And that is partially because, you know, they had trouble. One, you had trouble funding those local schools because you had to ask instead of someone who cared about funding their local schools because they paid for it in their local area. Uh, they saw the benefit and they saw the 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 housing value benefit. I mean, one of the strongest connections in the historical literature going back to, to 1969, a Wallace Oates piece, is that areas with better school districts tend to have higher values. Everything else held constant. And so, you know, a lot of people, you know, poo-poo that. Housing but values. One of the housing values, thank you. Um, one of the, the interesting finds of that is that gives people a very strong incentive to care about their local schools. Um, and that makes people really care about them because their own home voter hypothesis value. And so then when Prop 13 and the other happened and that kind of segregation between the your property taxes and the local schools, you had people who take a lot less interest in, in their local school system. Um, and there's a lot less kind of property tax gains that can be got from that, uh, the value of that, of raising that. So it's, I, I mean, I think obviously... You know, we've seen amazing success in school choice in Arizona and West Virginia and some other places recently, and that's very important. But if you look at how that does, usually it works. It takes the, the state funding formula and allows that to redistribute, but it keeps most of the, the local stuff insofar as it's not already redistributed uh, local, which, you know, we need more competition in schools in general. But insofar as you do have competitive local governments uh, that's which actually, and a lot of people who care very strongly about the value of their local schools, it works pretty well, which is why, again, suburban districts seem to work pretty efficiently in these central city districts, similar to the other problems I discussed with central cities earlier, seem to work terribly. Uh, Prop 13, just to be clear, was, uh, explain it. It was a cap uh, yeah. on it. Explain. It was a, a cap uh, passed by voters, again, about a two-to-one margin, I believe, in 1978 uh, that basically didn't allow uh, property taxes to raise more than, I, I think, 1% a year and uh, basically actually froze all kind of property tax income for all these cities and whatever they were in, in 1978 or the kind of distribution of it. And, you know, the argument I've made and, and Fischl and some others made is this is largely a, a downstream effect of this earlier attempt to uh, equalize school spending in some of the other states uh, attempts to kind of equalize, you know, local property taxes because yeah, otherwise it's property tax can be a very powerful reason to, to get people uh, involved in caring about their local community. And insofar schools is a more borderline case, but insofar as you do have public goods uh, that you do care about the roads and the rest of it, uh, it can help tighten the connection between those local incentives and uh, home. Fascinating. I uh, did not know that about, 
I knew there was equalization in some states across school districts in terms of spending. And I guess it's, I'm going into all the details. Obviously, there's, it's complicated, but um, I didn't think about what that does pre-stream or upstream. When, when you think about we need more of better roads or better whatever it is, and you're worried that a bunch of it's going to be siphoned off, your incentives are very low to yeah. favor that. Fascinating. And and the basic, oh, sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I mean, I, I think the basic thing is, you know, the argument that, you know, this goes down to kind of fundamental public choice economics and stuff of like, how do we decide how much public goods we want? And what's the best kind of level to this, decide that? I mentioned, you know, the kind of European slash Catholic concept of subsidiarity. Like, you know, you want the lowest level of government possible, but no lower. Um, and And to me, for a lot of these public goods, and for a lot of government in general, which everyone, you know, all of the public choice, you know, economists are not anarchists. They care about how do we fund actual public goods, uh, including public goods that may just have, you know, very low and declining, like are very high economies of scale that the public we feel needs to provide. Um, and there's a lot of good argument for saying like, the local government should do that, and they can do that much more efficiently, in which case we need to figure out a lot of ways to strengthen local government that will, you know, as James Buchanan realized later in his career, that kind of competition, both federalism at the state level and especially local level, will kind of constrain that Leviathan. So even if we have concerns about local spending and local, you know, factors and externalities and all the rest of it, you know, a lot of what we should do is figure out how to make sure these governments are are as kind of coherent and internalize most of what they can they can earn and benefit from as possible. What comes to mind is the following. Um, public competition is usually not, I don't think of it as, as effective as private competition. Um, usually it's expensive. It's much harder for me to move from Palo Alto to Menlo Park than it is for me to switch, change cars when I decide to buy a new one uh, and other things like that. Um, I get used to my neighborhood. I might like my public school or whatever it is. But what you're pointing out, I think, I think the real takeaway from our conversation is that even when local government works imperfectly, when we impose certain regulatory constraints on it from above, such as these kind of equalizing of property rights, we, we detach and destroy some of the natural incentives that might make them work fairly well. And that we've done a bunch of that in America. Is that, is that in other words, I don't want to be romantic and, and say that uh, each community depicts the level of zoning and, and housing regulation that, that it wants, because I don't like that kind of language. And I think it's misleading and the special interests and so on. But certainly if I make it hard to pick the level that anybody wants because I'm imposing certain constraints on it, uh, we're going to get a lot of people not paying attention. And uh, that'll make it even harder. It'll make it even easier yeah. for special interests to get what they want. Well, exactly. And I think, you know, you pointed out that it's harder to to move from a local government than to switch, you know, car suppliers or whatever it is. There's a lot, it's a lot more restricted on exit. And so, you know, what, what do we kind of, what economists realize when it's really hard to exit 
from some sort of areas. Now, one, you could talk about uh, antitrust or something like that and even breaking up the large things. And I've seen some good arguments, say, for breaking up school districts, even beyond the usual uh, arguments about just allowing, you know, voucher-based choice, which I agree with. But the the other thing is, you know, to think about is, is we do have the higher levels of government in some sense have to restrain that when you don't have as much of an exit option. So, you know, even the, say, electricity deregulation that, that it's kind of taken over the air, we all agree you can't really switch the wires that everything comes on comes through on the, you know, maybe you can allow electricity generators to compete for price and how much they provide electricity hours. But, you know, there's, it's really hard for you to just exit and pick another guy who's going to draw a wire to your house. So then you have the government kind of constrain that monopoly. And, you know, I think one of the important things are, you know, Monopoly is maybe just another word for inability to exit easily the or difficulty to exit. And so one of the things I think we need to do is uh, make sure courts, especially and higher levels of government are restraining kind of the worst excesses of that, uh, that one of the, you know, if you look at the 1950s and 60s, you had courts strike down, you know, minimum lot size of an acre is just plainly ridiculous. This is not. Uh, meaning you couldn't build a house on anything less than an acre large. And the court said, you know, this is just clearly expropriating the value of usually, say, a farmer's land. He can't develop fully because you're not doing that. And he doesn't have an ability to exit. That farm is just, you know, part of he was stuck in that municipality or whatever it was. And often the day it was harder. It was, you know, sometimes hard to form a new, new municipality, too. Uh, and so, you know, we should have courts in, in higher levels make sure that you don't have that while still making sure that as much as possible, we have that local government at the or government public goods provided that local level. Because the alternative of redistribution actually means we probably have too few public goods overall because people don't want to, the free rider problems I touched at before. Or we have the alternative of a Leviathan, a larger state uh, that has all of the log rolling problems we are know are even greater at that level and public choice. And I'll mention one thing that, uh, you know, I, I mentioned one final thing that I mentioned in that article is that for those, you know, kind of hardcore libertarians who are, who are big fans of say, you know, Robert Nozick, who love, uh, you know, the book Anarchy State and Utopia. He, he mentions uh, in the book, this idea of kind of a meta utopia that, uh, that allows people to choose these different communities that have a lot of a power. If you chose to join them, um, but as long as you have this exit option to be able to move from them, you know, the meta sort of government that protects peace and basic rights and so forth should kind of allow these local communities to, to operate because you want to allow people a diversity of choices, including choices to contract for public goods and some amount of control that you're willing to contract away from. Uh, and after I wrote this article, I actually read that um, Peter Betke over, over GMU and some others had written about that. Uh, James Buchanan had had in reviewing uh, Nozick's book compared this kind of the Tebow competition, the idea that this is might be like, well, this looks a little bit like Tebow competition. Uh, this looks like, you know, the kind of thing that, you know, to some extent we have in America, not that we should, you know, perfectly mimic that and not that we should allow local governments to run rampant or everything. But, you know, even if you're a hardcore libertarian, a lot of what zoning and a lot of this local control is, is people who moved to these areas and moved and made a choice to be constrained in some way. Um, and, you know, if as long as they have the ability to go to other ones, as long as they have the ability to form new governments, which is something we need to encourage, as long as they have the ability to move outside into the next county and start something there, uh, we should really encourage that. The ability to create 
You know, I mentioned the the last thing we want to do is collapse an admirable diversity of lifestyles into a battlefield in a state capital or into Washington, D.C., where we're all deciding this is a level of public goods we want for everybody. This is the kind of one rule we want for the whole nation. And instead, we should allow these local governments to kind of adopt more of their different rules to reflect the diversity of America. So, You could change one thing in the housing market and you can pick the city. What would you change? Uh, that's a tough one. And I, w- I would probably say that, uh, you know, if you just look at, you know, highest housing prices, it's, it's easy and correct to focus on the Bay Area and to say a lot of those rules that just prevent you from building outwards, uh, get rid of those. Everything from uh, uh, open space reserves to uh, slope density ordinances to uh uh, they often have the equivalent of, of green belts or urban growth boundaries that are fused to allow you to grow out. So get rid of all of those. Allow people to grow out. Get rid of those LAFCOs that prevent the, the new abilities to form new governments. And uh, you're going to get the Bay Area a lot closer uh, to, a, uh, to an efficient housing market. You know, right, Allowing that competition at the local level again and allowing them to spread out is going to do wonders for the Bay Area if they can manage it. And what would your answer be to the people who are concerned about urban sprawl and the the amount of infrastructure that's going to have to be created to allow those people to get to work and so yeah. on. Well, it's it's an issue and there's costs and benefits to every type of, of urban development. But a lot of the arguments against urban sprawl, as I said, are, are kind of solutions desperately searching for a problem. If you look at the 80s, a lot of the argument was, well, local air pollution from cars uh, is just choking us and we need to restrict cars and driving. Uh you know, thanks largely to environmental regulations, the, the local air pollution by cars are down by more than 90% per mile driven. It's not a local political issue like it once was. And now people say, well, you know, cars make a, you know, there's CO2 issue, the emissions issues. And, you know, I say that seems less important, obviously, when we're going more electric, when we're going hybrid, when we're going, uh, we're reducing the, the gasoline cost per miles driven. Uh, so like a lot of the arguments against sprawling cars, things to me, I, I just don't entirely understand them. And find the argument that like, well, it costs a lot of money. You know, one of the examples I use is, and we haven't talked about Houston, which has no zoning. Uh, but I, I think, uh, you know, I could explain yeah, why. Talk about Houston. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So, you know, Houston, one of the things they allow on, uh, their fringes is something called municipal utility districts, MUDs, they're known. And a developer can kind of go out into the sticks in Harris County or further out counties, further outside of, of Houston and basically have two people raise their hand and say, I agree to vote for a MUD in my district and we'll tax ourselves to, to do the MUD. Um, and then the MUD, uh, issues bonds, the, these local muds, they build the roads out there. They build the, the pipes, uh, the sewers, the water and the rest of it. And, uh, that's all internalized. All of the property tax payers in that new area have to, are all the, the homeowners have to pay for all those new utilities through property taxes. And the only way you can get someone to pay for them is to encourage them to move to that place in the first place because there's nobody there yet. Uh, and so there's a lot of good evidence that this stuff, especially when properly internalized, does pay for itself. And you want to encourage that uh, because that encourages more people to to create these. Now, on the broader issue of Houston and zoning, which is a big discussion, uh, you know, I live uh, right now in Austin. I'm just a few hours outside of Houston. Houston is an amazing, successful city. Uh, I've known people who worked on some of the re- recent uh, votes 
to make sure Houston was not zoned, remained the only large unzoned city in America. And I think they were correct to do that. Uh, but there's two things I'll mention about Houston that I think are important. One, for the argument that zoning is the overwhelming reason why housing prices are high, Houston shows has very low housing prices, but not relative to California and New York and some of the others, but not very distinct relative to, say, Dallas or Fort Worth right next door. It's, you know, by some measures, their their housing price to income ratio is almost the same, maybe about 10% higher in Dallas. Uh, so it doesn't seem like the zoning in these a lot of these other cities is really is what holding increasing housing prices. And two, as I mentioned, you know, there's an argument these central cities should probably not be zoned and, and that the central cities, the densest places in America uh, already are actually because of all the problems I talked about with central city log rolling and kind of a, a large monopolistic sort of government with less exit options that they don't need to kind of control their fiscal mix as much as other people. They rely on property taxes from a lot of downtown real estate that doesn't require many services. Uh, and therefore, there's less of an argument for kind of Tebow competition for central cities as there are in these kind of small competing municipal governments, which is also why, you know, the very most important kind of goal in, in school uh, choice is those central cities, because to some extent, not entirely, those suburbs have more competition between districts in the central cities do. Uh, but the other thing about Houston is that, one, they have a lot of other things. Uh, they have a lot of homeowners associations and other groups that allow people to control the land use in their areas. And two, a lot of the suburbs themselves are zoned. I mentioned, I think, Katy, Sugarland, some of these other cities are, are zoned in the suburbs outside of Houston. So Houston shows that you can have a city that works very successfully, uh, that allows suburbs to choose some amount of their own zoning, that allows uh, some people to form new governments outside of the fringes of it. And, you know, it works pretty well. It doesn't work as distinctly as from, say, again, Dallas or or San Antonio or some of these other, other cities as people think. But, you know, that kind of mix of pretty open in the center city, some amount of suburban competition, some amount of unanimous homeowner association controlling land use uh, can do pretty well. Again, I think the trying to give fair audience to my more environmentally oriented friends who correctly see density as the a powerful uh, tool for environmental improvement and would argue that dense cities with more bikes and more, you know, more bike, less car oriented, mm-hmm. if there was more Tebow competition for those kind of cities. If there are more American cities, say like Amsterdam or other European cities that have taken a, a different approach to the car, you know, my response to that is always, well, Americans, Europeans have very different demands for space. They have bigger Americans have bigger families. They like being out in Sugarland and Katy probably, and they don't really want to cram themselves into a, a tall apartment building. When they're single, they might, but when they have kids, they're less interested. And I think the battle zone for urban life in America, and here it is where we have lots of interesting issues around this because of the high costs of living in Tel Aviv, which is a place so many young Israelis want to settle in, to start with at least. Uh, the battle zone is is really this question of, you know, what's the role of the car? How many roads are we going to build? How good a tr- public transportation system we're going to build alongside it? And then I wonder what technology might come along, you know, um, 
buses are pretty primitive. They're just big cars. <laughs> uh, they're yeah. they're probably better ways to to move groups of people around effectively and um, to have fewer people in their cars. I don't know. Any thoughts but, on that? For, and we'll close. Yeah, with this. So I, I I wrote a piece for for the Breakthrough Journal and Breakthrough Institute is kind of a, a what they call themselves eco modernist. Uh, group out of Oakland in California I wrote a piece that slightly tongue in cheek, but but I don't think it accurately was titled "Sprawl is Good: The Environmental Benefits of, of Sprawl." And you know, I I think one besides made the, a lot of friends from that piece, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> You're a brave man, um, Judge. <laughs> it's uh, I, you know, like you, I, I know a lot of uh, very strong urbanists, and I myself only lived, I think, in in central cities for for my entire adult life. I I love them. I tend to be a more urban guy myself. But one, you look at the evidence, and like you say, kind of the overwhelming uh, majority of Americans, the survey was, I think, 90% of millennials uh, even said they want a single-family home with a car at some point in their lives. Um, And two, that there, the car is not only is it getting more efficient; it's emitting less uh, local air pollution, emitting less CO two over the long run. Uh, there's there's real environmental cost to density. I'm not saying that there's not cost to sprawl too, because there are. But one of the things like it's almost universal in the literature is that there's more local air pollution if you have more. Uh, more people crammed together, you're more likely to suck down more nitrous oxide, more sulfur dioxide, all these things, simply because even if every person emits a little less individually, it's all crammed more together in that one small space. And there's also, you know, some arguments that, you know, a single family home, it's largely stick built. It's largely wood, which means it's largely uh, uh, using a renewable resource. that's a carbon sink. Uh, The more when, especially when you get up above four or five floors, when you're using concrete, when you're using steel, these are very heavy CO2 emitting uh, materials, and you have the argument that uh, some evidence is for the same amount of square foot, these higher buildings use a lot more energy and electricity because you have to heat and cool the common areas. You have to make elevators go up and down. You have to use this. So again, not saying that there's not cost to sprawl, especially you know habitat destruction and some of the others that you need to concern about. But I think kind of the overwhelming focus that the the future and the environmental future is going to be all these people living in dense apartments does not understand some of those local environmental costs and even some of the you know kind of climate environmental costs. And it doesn't consider and it but it also doesn't consider the sort of fact that most people want to live in, in these single family homes. Not everybody. And like you say, we need more competition to allow some of those more Amsterdams in America and so forth. But I, I think just aesthetically, a lot of people are unhappy with suburbia and they refuse to admit that that might just be how a lot of Americans want to live. And we should focus on how can we make that green and environmentally sound as possible as, as opposed to kind of like seeing how we can cram more people into to 10 story apartment buildings. Do you want to say anything about making cities nicer? I think, I think, the, I think the complaint isn't just, they don't like suburbia. I think they think urbia could use some improvement. Is there anything there they have that they're right about? To, I, obviously, you know, there, there's few cities in America right now. I'm actually sitting in New York city, which is gorgeous and exciting and amazing, but it's also has serious problems with, with crime, local pollution, and just, you know, quality of life on the streets. You know, I, one of the things I think that most big urban mayors don't understand is how important, you know, the daily sort of quality in life and basic sense of order that 
you know, was achieved in many cities in, in the 90s and the early 2000s uh, was for the, the reflourishing of American cities because they went from losing population for about 50 years to starting to grow again around the 1990s and 2000s. And a large part of that was people wanted to feel safe and they wanted to feel like they were living in a clean, open city. Uh, and one of the things that allowed them to do that was... Uh, you know, not just making sure murders and criminals or robbers or whoever it was was prosecuted, but making sure that kind of life was comfortable and clean when you, you stepped outdoors. And when a lot of people escape to the suburbs, even if they do want to live in the cities, and I know many people like that, um, it's because that kind of inability to control the public space uh, kind of collapsed. And it's, my joke is that in a lot of these big cities, they're very, very regulated in the private space. If you want to build a sink in your wall, you know, or whatever it is, you need 10,000 permits. But if you want to, you know, do whatever you want in public, you know, throw out trash, or whatever, you do anything, which is 180 degrees the opposite of what government should do. They should be very focused on that public space and they should allow as much as possible within some constraints and, you know, some amount of zoning and the rest of it, allow you to do what you want in that private sector. And so uh, reorienting cities to again, focus on what they really can control the public space, as opposed to so much of what you do inside you know, your house, I think would be a good step. I guess today has been judge Glock judge. Thanks for being part of econ talk. Thanks so much for having me, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.